Hello everyone and welcome to the Property Journey podcast, Beginner to Expert. My name is Chris Stewart and today I'm joined by Roy Duggan, my co-host. And uh, hopefully we will be bringing you a lot more about the property journey. So a little bit about what the property journey means. Obviously we're going to be talking about the full property journey, whether that means you're involved in first-time buyer, you're a home mover or also you are going to be investing. Um, obviously, we'll not be giving out financial advice, but we will be just talking a little bit more about mm-hmm. the process. Um, for me, I am the beginner. Um, I would say it was only 12 weeks ago that I really became known. That's right, yeah, 12 weeks. In the conveyancing process. Um, so the beginner part comes from me. Roy is the expert. Well, yes, I've been involved in property for the best part of 12, 15 years now. So I have been personally involved in buying a house, buying houses, selling houses, refurbishing houses, a self-build as well. And then I also deal with home movers, uh, builders and developers as well. So like in, in that sense that we will hopefully be able to bring more information to people, that's kind of the key. Uh, for me anyway, the things I've noted down a couple of things about what we want to talk about in the first episode here, which is uh, the introduction, mm-hmm. um, so that you just can kind of get to know who we are um, and what we'll be looking to do. Um, but it's more about what we want to be able to achieve. So for myself anyway, it's more gathering that knowledge of buying a house and the process and understanding how to be able to do that as well as then obviously looking at what would I do for example if I bought a house I'm not really happy with it thinking about moving to another area how that process then happens and then also further down the line we see a lot of people talking about investing in property and what way maybe further down the line that would that would maybe look at as well so for me personally that's kind of what I would look to achieve out of this anyway mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yourself no well, it's, it's it's good to pass on the, the experience and the knowledge that I have uh, conveyancing or property transactions is all that I I do in the legal world it's a, something that I have a passion for and it's something I aspire to make the process as simple and as stress free as possible for anybody involved and like would you say at the minute Roy that the, the property uh, conveyancing process would, would be classified as difficult or it certainly has its you know, complications. Uh, the problem is there's so many people involved in a, in a transaction from surveyors to mortgage brokers to banks themselves to estate agents to solicitors. So there's just, there's just so many people involved, government departments as well. And there's so many cogs and the more cogs that you have involved in any matter, it just becomes more complicated. Yeah. Now what we have found is post-COVID, the, the process has got got longer and I suppose maybe a reason for that is staff issues throughout the whole industry. There are a lot of industries at the minute there's a shortage of staff and that's having a big knock on impact as well. So having a longer process certainly doesn't doesn't help. Uh, just the longer process gives time, people more time to think about you know is this going to happen? They get more stressed about it. So my ambition is to try and keep that uh, as stress free and hopefully try and cut down the time on the process. And like that, I suppose that's the thing, you know, these processes can probably change as, as time goes on, as you say there, during COVID, obviously things happened and then that now has an implication on, on the way that the conveyance process happens. Um, so 
probably for for me, what would be the definition of convincing? Because when you kind of throw convincing out there and people don't maybe understand, you know, for example, my part maybe six months ago, if you'd asked me what convincing was, mm-hmm. I, would, I, I would have looked at you with three heads, you know, so... Like what kind of is the the term the that term. you could say convincing? Well, convincing, you know, I suppose anybody in the in in the industry is well aware of what it is, and I suppose gets a wee bit uh, just used to it, and maybe don't don't doesn't explain it. But I appreciate having dealt with yourself and dealing with first time buyers that haven't a clue what convincing is and what a convincer <laughs> does. Yeah. So a convincer is somebody who goes through legal paperwork and basically processes it, particularly buying a house, selling a house and signs off on it and completes it. In England and throughout the rest of the British Isles you have a conveyancer which is somebody who's trained up but in Northern Ireland it's a different process in that you can only be a solicitor so it's only a solicitor in Northern Ireland that can complete the conveyancing process. So essentially if I was buying a house in England for example I technically wouldn't have to go to uh, a solicitor no, not particularly no so you can go to there are specialists or people who are trained up and they just convey the property to you and they have a license for doing that and it's very straightforward but in Northern Ireland it is uh, it's a solicitor so, well, I suppose I yeah because like, <laughs> I was suddenly thinking it's essentially like you kind of rather than going to law school as such you kind of could go and do a course that's it you go through the different aspects of convincing then you become a qualified convincer yeah whereas over in NIE then it's a solicitor you technically still have to go to law school and and then go through the format that way exactly so I suppose then what is convincing it's it's that process there's many different people involved I know you've mentioned a few Mm mm-hmm and over over the the course of this podcast as well, we're we're going to be hoping to get a number of guests in, um, those those people that are involved in the process to see their um, outlook on on the conveyancing process and and their vision and and how they see the the process currently. Um, so like, what types of people do you have to work with when you're trying to sort out? you know, someone's property transaction, if, if someone's came to you and says, I want to be able to buy a house, mm-hmm. you're obviously the person then that's that's trying to sort the paperwork, that's to try and basically bundle everything together. So what types of people do you have to deal with then in, over the course of the, the weeks? Well, this is maybe where the, the complications arise. So for instance, if I'm acting for a purchaser, that means, so I'm the purchaser solicitor, Generally and strictly speaking, the only person that I'm dealing with is the seller solicitor and that, that's it. There's only the two of us. It's only the two of us that communicate with each other, but yet there's all those other people involved and all their, you know, they have all their many tasks to do and it's only coming back to that one solicitor or myself. So you can understand, you know, if you're trying to organise a team to do something and there's 50, 60 people on the team, but none of those 50 or 60 people are talking to each other, yeah, it's, it's just obviously chaos is going to, is going to happen. A, a recipe for disaster. Yeah, but what, what we try to do is a good convincer, a good solicitor will try and get involved and pull together maybe core people in, in their create a core team. So for instance, uh, your mortgage broker, you speak with them to try and liaise, you know, where, where is the mortgage application? Uh, has the surveyor been out to the property? Are there any queries? 
and if you have an issue with the mortgage offer you're going straight to the, 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 the broker who could maybe fast track things or find out a bit more information maybe, maybe sooner. Likewise then you can speak with the estate agent, you have them on board because they maybe have a direct link with the, with the, you know, the, other, the other party and if there's a bit of a chain that estate agent might be involved in that chain as well mm -hmm. which allows you then to jump down the chain two or three to find out what exactly is happening so by pulling together that, that core it certainly uh, speeds up and smooths the process. And looking sort of I suppose from my point of view if I was going to buy a house now and I'm looking around and I'm looking at different websites, there's local estate agents that I'm, that I'm going to look at and I found, I found the dream home that I want to go and buy. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Well, the first thing is you, you want to make sure you can afford to buy the, the property. So by speaking to a mortgage advisor or a bank, they can do you know, a bit of research and a, and a, a preliminary confirmation as to how much money you can borrow and, and from that how much money you can borrow, how much deposit have you got, that will tell you how much of a house and the value of the house that you can actually buy in the first place. So essentially step one would be kind of looking at the financials. The, fin the, the figures. The figures. The figures. Yes. So go to a mortgage advisor, figure out kind of here's my income, here's what I'm bringing in every month or every week. Yes. Here's my outgoings, this is what I owe. Yeah. And they can come up with a figure and kind of go, right, you could maybe get a mortgage of in and around 150000 say. Similar to buying a car. You know, when you go and buy a car, you, you just don't go and pick the nicest one. You don't pick the biggest one. You, know, you, you first of all look at a, at a budget and then you look at the practicalities. You know, so with a car, you know, you're looking at what size is it? Do you need a small car? Do you need a big car? What's it going to cost to maintain, to, to, to look after? Um, those sorts of things take that mindset to buying a house as well you just don't go and buy the nicest house that's out there you want to make sure you know is it in, in, in the area that suits you is it close to you does it have the correct number of bedrooms for instance or the right size for you and ultimately you know, what's what's the upkeep of it going to be there's no point buying a big house if you're maybe only living by yourself it's going to be a fortune to and, keep. And I, and I think we had touched our, in a previous conversation that we had just normally we had touched about making sure that the house that you're looking at tailors to your lifestyle as well and you know if you like to go out on a Saturday night you want to maybe make sure that your house is close to a town centre or yeah. you're able to get transport back and forward to the house or whatever it happens to be so yeah. Figures first. Figures first. Likewise, likewise, if you pick too big of a house, it's going to cost you too much, and then you're going to have no lifestyle on a Saturday night. So it's all within all within Saturday, reason. Saturday yes. night's ruined then. So it all is, within you know, reason. You might be able to go out for one pint then, and that's the height of it. You're away back home again. Um, so figures first, and then we're looking at kind of. I suppose then you could maybe go back to the estate agent or looking at what properties are on the market then, yeah. and kind of beginning to fine tune. These are within my budget, these are going to fall outside of my budget and, and kind of begin to look specifically then yes. at what types of property are going to suit you. Yeah. So I've went back and I've done that. Mm -hmm. What do I do next? I found the property that I want. Do I speak to the, the estate so agent? Yes, so the estate agent then, so the house will have been listed and it'll have a price. So it's a matter of you speak with the estate agent. If there's no offers on the house, then it's up to you to make to make an offer. You know, 
Um, it, you'll be guided by the estate agent. They'll tell you it's going to be offers around. So that could maybe mean you, you could put a, an offer in slightly lower or it might just be a starting price off a particular price. But generally, you know, the estate agent will guide you on that and you place your, your offer. If it is the case whereby maybe the house has a bit of demand and there's a few other people interested, well then yes, you get a few bids. You know, you're gonna put an offer in, another person who's interested, they'll put an offer in. And over the last 18, 24 months, we've heard about bidding wars. So that simply means if there's two, three people mad keen on a house, they just that everybody keeps putting in bids and the price can go up and up and up. So essentially, I've seen a house for that's being advertised, for example, one hundred and fifty thousand. Mm -hmm. Someone could obviously put a bid on saying that they really like it, one hundred and fifty-five. Mm -hmm. If I really want that, I could go one hundred and sixty, and they could come back and just go one hundred and seventy. So yeah, essentially, what you've got then is that house is being bought for twenty thousand pounds. More than what the asking price was. Yes, technically, so that, you know, a, a property is worth what it's what somebody is willing to pay on the open market. Now, thankfully, there is a safety net in place. So, for instance, you could have a you could bid up and bid up, and it goes that far. But whenever you go and get your mortgage offer, the bank will send out a valuer just as a safety net to make sure you haven't paid too much. So the bank will actually reaffirm whether you've paid the correct price. Well, they're not, sorry, they're not saying that you've paid the correct price, but it's a safety net to make sure that you're not paying too much for it. For example, I've just paid £170,000 for a house that mm -hmm. really and truly is maybe only worth 120 or 125 Five. Yes. So once that kind of happens, and, and obviously bidding wars that could happen on any property, or you might be lucky and strike gold mm -hmm. and get a property for maybe slightly cheaper than mm -hmm. what's being advertised. Mm -hmm. It really depends, I suppose, on what your first initial bid is and what the demand is for, yeah. for the houses in that area. Um, like, what way do you kind of, you, you mentioned there, like the bidding wars and, and the demand for property. Is, is that something since sort of COVID times, as the property market, has there been a higher demand for a property? I know that can Things. change in certain areas and certain areas maybe in, in high sought after areas, people will, will pay more for properties in that area and hence the price goes up. But is there more of a demand for housing in, in Northern Ireland as a whole? Well, there's been a few changes. You know, Historically, the property market was very seasonal. So during the winter months, it was much quieter. So you know people weren't interested in maybe perhaps moving house in the dark winter months so that could have been the, the right time of year to maybe get a bargain as such if you want to put it that way but likewise there was fewer properties on the market and then traditionally coming into spring and summer that was always the busiest time mm -hmm. post-covid there literally hasn't been a let up for almost two years until about october november last year where things did a uh, pull back a little bit more to normal but there, there is a demand, there's a massive demand for properties, there's a shortage of properties. So, you know, during the last recession, there was a period of a good maybe five, almost ten years where there's quite a, quite a few houses not being built where they should have been built. So the, the population has grown, there's a lot of people mad looking to buy houses and there's not enough property there. So it's all supply and demand. If you have a lot of people interested and you've only a small number, then that just push, pushes 
the price up. And hence then why I've been reading probably news articles and stuff about uh, there's not even enough properties for renters and, and people that are looking for rental properties and, and it's all feeding in, in that way as well. Yeah. Hence why prices of properties have continued to rise then. Exactly. So and that I suppose that's not being negative either because you can hear now a lot of new properties are being built as well, um, new build estates and, and that's something we've talked about again mm-hmm. on, a, on a personal level that there's a lot more kind of new build estates coming through and stuff like that as well. So again, I suppose back to the convincing process as such, you know, we've, we've put the bid on and we've been accepted. At, at what stage then do I begin to look for at that stage, I suppose it would be a solicitor. So if the property's been sale agreed to you, it's very exciting. So you've got you know confirmation that the, the seller has accepted your offer. So now is the process of actually moving on and buying the property. Yeah. So you have two people to get speaking to. The first one is a mortgage advisor or a mortgage broker. Uh, so basically, they're generally the same. So you have either, you can go to an advisor who is uh, like a broker for instance, for all the different banks, so you're speaking to one person, but they're getting you potential deals from all the high street banks, or you can individually go round every single bank and speak to them. So no, not sure I'd want to kind of go round each individual bank. You it, know, it's a personal. It's a personal choice. Some people maybe have a relationship with the bank for many years, and they feel that that that's the best way for them. Other people feel like maybe it's more efficient just to speak to one person. I suppose it's a bit similar like car insurance. You know, with car insurance, you can go to a broker and they're gonna give you all, an all of the market scenario. I was gonna say, my, my relationship with my bank is usually the, the live chat uh, Autobot, so it is, you know, whatever the name usually is, but then, you know, you never usually speak to a human anymore. And that, well, there's different, yes, uh, no doubt, there's different uh, ways that banks, banks do it. and. Uh, some may have a, a, a very modern way of doing it, and others may have a, have a traditional way. But once you have your, your mortgage uh, broker or advisor lined up, so that's, they're, they're going to sort out the finance side of it, then you need to get speaking to a solicitor. So it's generally speaking to a conveyancing solicitor is the, the main point. So in the legal game, you have different options. You've got solicitors who do a little bit of everything. So that means they maybe do, they do property, they do claims, they do divorces, matrimonials, things like that. And there are solicitors out there who specialize in each of those areas. So you know, it's understandably, it's probably best to go to a specialist, but the only thing that you do have to make sure is whatever bank you're going to go with, then you have to make sure that that solicitor is approved and on the panel for for that bank because otherwise then they'll not be able to, to act for you. So that's actually interesting because that's not something that I, I'd actually heard of. So the solicitor themselves has to nearly have a relationship with the bank that you're getting so your mortgage the, off. The bank is actually working for, sorry, the solicitor is actually working for the the bank as well so you have to be approved and be on their be on their panel and at the end of the day it's the bank who's lending the money they're basically the bigger owner yeah. of, of the of the property so yes the, the solicitor has to be has to be approved so there's different criteria some for instance some banks you have to do a set number of conveyance and transactions per year some might be you have to be your business has to be a particular size and have so many partners to be able to do their to do their work. Mm-hmm. And I guess I suppose then when it boils down to picking sort of again your mortgage advisor or your solicitor, um, like 
is there different things that you should be looking for you know in terms of do you go and look for google reviews or recommendations or does your estate agent maybe have a recommendation on who to speak to and, and mortgage advisors or solicitors you know kind of for someone that maybe doesn't know or their family maybe doesn't have a solicitor specifically mm-hmm. who, who do you kind of gauge off that well i think the best way to describe it is this is how i do business with people and, and i'll compare it with how a lot of people do it so a lot of people who don't have knowledge, immediately what they'll do is they'll go out and they'll assume that, you know, if you, you, you pick a solicitor, they all know. So it's the same as any other industry. For instance, recently there, I needed an electrician to do something for me. And it was quite a complex job. And I've spoken to two or three. And I could easily just say, what is the price? Give me your price and I'll choose the cheapest one. Yeah. And just assume, well, they're all electricians, so they're all going to know the job. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that mightn't be the case. There's a couple other things I want to bear in mind is how do I get on with that person? Is that person able to take my phone call? Did that tradesman explain it to me in a way that I understood it? Did I feel as if he was just waffling or getting round the scenario or trying to hook me hook me in? And it's really more about a rapport. Yeah. And I want to know that I'm working with somebody that I can lift the phone to that is going to explain it, is going to be helpful, is going to get me you know, get it sorted out yeah, from yeah. me and there's a lot of people just make that mistake in picking the cheapest one another thing is recommendations it can be quite difficult to go with recommendations yes it's a definitely good a good help certainly you know if you're staying in a hotel and you, you always check the recommendations um, but to go one step further on the recommendations is basically find out what was the recommendation because what might be suitable for one person may not be for another. So, for instance, in, in, the, in the legal game, if you get a recommendation maybe from your granny, mm-hmm. when your granny is tr- more than likely maybe have chosen a solicitor who is somebody of a similar age or, or maturity, and obviously they've gelled and you know, they're, they're on a wavelength that, that is the same, is that going to be the same? Yes. R- rapport yeah. you know from your granny as a first time buyer you know, I'm not saying age is anything to do with it but I'm just saying it's all about that connection yeah. and, and that, that rapport and I suppose what they could have used that solicitor for say 20 years ago 30 years ago yes. even 5 years ago or 2 years ago could have been something completely different to what conveyancing was yes. You know, they could have come in and got a well made or they could have come in and uh, they get a divorce, whatever it happens to be, but they weren't buying a house, you know, so I suppose then understanding what that recommendation was and what they maybe went to yeah. to get done or, or sorted out was and comparing that whether or not they, they actually had a, you know, we used them for conveyance and as such. So the main, the main thing is just the, probably, as I say, the rapport, the connection, so that the more mature person in my my advice, my experience is the more mature person likes the you know the the more face the face to face the one to one coming in to see you and the telephone communication and that real they want a real connection, whereas what we find is maybe with the the, the, the younger generation they haven't time for that rapport they haven't yeah. time for the one to one they just want it done quickly they want. Uh, they want the job done. They want the job done. They treat like maybe an email is like a text message. They want it, they want an answer instantly. Yeah. Um. So that that's the big that's the big difference. And, and I suppose both of them are actually difficult to manage as well because 
if you're working on on the process for example that's going to be difficult to get that instant response back but as well as that if you're trying to work on the process as well and someone's looking for face-to-face meetings Mm -hmm. you know that's time consuming to sit down and and explain the the different aspects of what's going on and then have to go back and then try and get picked back up again with your work and if you have a number of people coming in and doing that then that's going to be difficult again so I suppose the the juggling aspect of that will will be quite difficult but Something that we probably maybe actually didn't touch on there was, you know, I, I went off and says that I've got my mortgage and stuff, but mm-hmm. I didn't tell you whether or not I had any money saved up, mm-hmm. which leads me to deposits. Yes. Is there a ratio or is there kind of roughly the amount of money that I should have saved for, I know we had used the figure of a house at 150000 Mm-hmm. Roughly speaking, is there a kind of like it should I, should I be saving ten percent for a deposit or five percent or where where should it kind of be? Well, firstly, I'm a big advocate of of saving. You know, saving is something that was that was drilled into me as a as a child, and it's just something that has has stuck to me. I was chatting with my wife the other day, and I think maybe something which which triggered it in me is. I went to a country primary school and the local bank actually came down every Tuesday morning into yes. the school yeah. and y- you queued up and you brought your, your one pound coin in every week and you, you saved it up and you were comparing, oh, I've saved this much and it was, it was brilliant. So I think that that mindset has, has stayed with me for years. So if you're going to buy a house, buying a house is not an impulse. You know, Maybe you can go and buy something else and you can get credit on it and it's much, much more easier and you don't need any deposit, whereas a house should be something that you're working towards and something if possible build up over 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 years and the more deposit you have the easier it is to not the easier but it gives you more choice of the the type of house that you can go for as for the how much deposit that you need certainly by speaking to a mortgage broker well in advance you know don't don't speak to a mortgage broker just when you want a mortgage yeah. probably best speak to them you know a year, two years, three years before you're planning on buying a house so they can actually tell you right well um, banks are going to ask for this percentage of a deposit or, or what have you and then at least you can then put your, your ducks in a row so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Another option is if you don't necessarily have the deposit you can have a deposit from uh, family members mm-hmm. so there's nothing stopping parents or grandparents you know, gifting a deposit to, to you ban, ban your house which is simply then declared to the mortgage broker declared to the bank and everything then put in place after that I wish um, <laughs> I, I suppose then you know with the deposits and, and again one of the one of the main things at the minute is the interest rates rising mm-hmm. um, and again it's something that, that we've talked about but obviously with the higher interest rates now is that a case of if people are saving for their deposits and you know they're they're maybe thinking about going down and, and looking about buying a property? Well, we need to scale back sort of on that figure of I'd planned one hundred and fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. Should I now be going for a property that's maybe slightly less than that to make sure that my mortgage payments kind of fits in with what I was what I was budgeting for? Well, this is something, I have, I have an economic 
background as well and I enjoy getting the, getting into the nitty gritty of it and I appreciate as a first time buyer you know they don't know anything like that and they're looking at the media and it can be a bit doom, doom, doom and gloom yeah, yeah. I suppose to give it a wee bit of a history and the economics side of things you've mentioned their interest rates so the Bank of England who's the main bank in the UK have a, have a rate that they set and then all other banks work from it so the Bank of England have uh, an interest rate at the minute and the main purpose that they have for that interest rate is to control the economy. So that's where you hear people talking about inflation. So inflation is the cost of everything that you buy in your, in your, you know, in your monthly shopping cart, effectively. So at the minute, the cost of all those products that you're buying is increasing and increasing and increasing. It's getting more expensive. So the Bank of England want to control it. And the only way they can control that is by putting up interest rates. Mm -hmm. So if they put up interest rates, then that means the cost of borrowing is much more expensive. So that means the likes of buying a house is going to cost cost you a lot more. So what they're planning on doing is they've put the interest rates up to try and curb people from spending, curb people from borrowing money, and then that'll hopefully slow the economy down. Now the Bank of England meet every single month to 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 monitor the economy yeah. and they can set that interest rate every single month it could go up or go down historically we've had a crazy low interest rate for, for such a long time that the cost of borrowing has been so so small yeah. and I suppose in a way people have maybe been accustomed to that and they've bought a lot, they've borrowed a lot and mortgages have been very 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 low we're not at a point where a mortgage today is costing considerably more than what it would have done maybe two years ago. So to come back to your question there, in my opinion, personal opinion, people needs, the, you know, the, the general public need to accustom their living. You know, if it's something that they want to buy a house, well then they need to know how much is it going to cost to borrow that house and the rest of their lifestyle has to be adopted to suit it. Yeah. Not simply this is my lifestyle and buying a house and owning a house has to fit into it. And funny, this was a conversation I was having with my partner uh, yesterday was, is, is it a case of that when I go to buy a house, it, it should be kind of, I should be leaving myself a bit of breathing room so that I don't max myself out with, you know, a monthly payment straight away because if the interest rates increase, I'm already maxed out. Yeah. I have no breathing room here. So, so should it kind of be a case of, let's look at the figures. Say, for example, I could afford £600 a month. Mm -hmm. Do I go for something, say, for example, and £600 is my max? Should I go for something that's maybe under around £450 or £500? I don't know, like, like these figures could be completely off. But for, a, for an example, go for something at £450 or, or £500, and that gives me about a roughly £100 breathing space so that if they do fluctuate, I can absorb that kind of mortgage cost. Would that be like a sensible outlook on it or? Buying a house, it's like, and running a house, it's like running a business. And this is where a lot of people get it completely wrong. Quite rightly, as you say, some people just think, right, at the minute, I can afford this much of a monthly payment. But running a house, that's what I said at the start there, it's all about the running costs. You know, if you maybe have an older house or it needs refurbed or needs work done to it, that's more money that you need. Yeah. So every month you should be sitting down and basically have uh, enough to cover all the bills, still have a have a have a life, and you know, a bit of socialising and a bit of fun, 
and basically you need to factor in uh, contingencies. You know, you need to be able to cover, for instance, if the Bank of England decide to put up their interest rates, and will that have a knock-on impact to your mortgage? Can you afford it? But ultimately, what about as well if you become sick, you know, or you lose yeah. your job, or there's a redundancy, or you know, you, you're you're off sick, you could fall and slip and break your leg yeah. very easily. Yeah. And if you rely on every single penny coming in every month, and that stops for a month, and you don't have anything to pay your 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 bills, the whole thing comes crumbling down. And I, and I suppose like. Uh, it's understandable as well and probably worth noting that you know currently the with the cost of living crisis and stuff as well you know we're not advocating that it's it's easy to control the way that costs are because obviously heating prices went up and energy costs went up electricity is up gas is up you know you food prices are up everything's just went up Mm -hmm. so it's understandable that that people are obviously currently struggling with mortgages now going up as well because the interest rates are going up but this is more from a perspective of I'm going to go and buy a house so Mm -hmm. you know these are the things that people need to think about is the running costs as well as what if I go and get a mortgage now we need to make sure that that interest rate there is potentially going to go up Mm -hmm. therefore we need to kind of make sure that we build that and do the plan as such and the point that you did make is is that the interest rates are were so low mm-hmm. that at some stage they were gonna have to go up at some at some stage and, and I suppose maybe how long do people maybe have expected it? Did they expect it to go maybe not point or point five percent to one or two percent? It's now at five, so maybe we didn't expect it to go as high as five, maybe we didn't expect it to go one or two. It's it's a it's probably a minefield to try and figure out and plot and I suppose we could get into the conversation of remortgages to further down the line. But again, again, there are situations where you have to think about: Do I go for the interest rate current? Do I lock it in? Do I try and go on a on a, or a variable rate and and see what way maybe if the rate comes down? It's 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 a process that you kind of you know as you say you just don't jump into it. See, having a, an economic background, I have, a, I have a passion and enjoy the economics. You had said there about you didn't know whether the interest rates were going to go up or not. All the experts were saying that you know they had to go up. You know I was predi- you know predicting that they were going to go up. You know, uh, in economics, a sustainable good economy runs at a 5% interest rate, mm-hmm. whereas we had interest rates at less than 1% for, for, for years. So knowing that knowledge that at some point the interest rates had to come back to that, yeah, yeah. I appreciate for, you know, just you know, people have no knowledge of that, they're not going to look about it. With the economy, with finances, the financial market, every day, every month, you know, has different things factoring it. And if you're not watching it, you don't know what's happening. The problem is the media occasionally jump in on different areas. Well, the, the, this is something that and I, uh, you can see it, obviously, it nearly every time that uh, every month with the Bank of England currently, with the way that they were raising interest rates, it was like headline news, you know, Bank of England raises interest rates. But if you don't understand what that is, that's that's daunting. Yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, it's at 5%. It was at, you know, 05 and people are kind of looking at it going, well, what does that mean for me? You know, 
you, you hear people now saying that their mortgages are up 200, 250 pounds a month and and I suppose that's a lot of money to try and absorb mm-hmm. and, and I suppose that's the point that I was making about any first time buyers or people that are buying their first property needs to consider that buffer zone mm-hmm. and needs to consider I can't max myself out here because if we do go an hour £250 here over the course of six or seven or eight months can I sustain £400 going to £650 a month yeah. you know because that, that's that, for a lot of people that could be a week's wage an, an extra okay. week's wage yeah. on, on top of you know what they're already paying so it's all about affordability and you, you, you have to nearly like having a crystal ball even though the, there's no such thing you know if you're just working and you're just covering all the bills when you buy the house what about you know if you know, you know the sofa breaks or the, the washing machine breaks yeah. or you need to change your car where's all that money money going to come from so unfortunately if you can't afford it from day one and you're stretching to make it work it's it's not it's not for you yeah yeah so I'm trying to even think where we, where we left off there. We got a wee bit sidetracked, so we did. Um, we were talking about, obviously, the estate agents, mortgage advisors, uh, picking your solicitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, obviously, we've went through, we've picked the solicitor based on, you know, who we've got a good rapport with. Where do, where do we go from there, then, if we're buying a house? So, you've got your mortgage broker and your solicitor chosen. At that point, then, it's kind of like a twofold. What you're going to do is you're going to be speaking with the mortgage broker. They're going to go through the application. They'll want information from you and get that approved and sorted out. And then at the same time, the solicitor is going to be getting in touch with you as well. So the solicitor is going to be starting to go through all the legal paperwork, the the title deeds, the searches, the property certificates, and getting that all approved and all, all tracked off or checked off. And obviously then that, that's the buyer's solicitor. So yes you know, I've went them I want to purchase this property, that's what my buyer solicitor is doing. On the flip side of that then there's a solicitor for the seller. For the seller. Yes. And and what are they doing then at, at that time? So they are then it's their job and their role to get all the paperwork together to make sure the house is all not you know, to have all the paperwork, all the correct paperwork mm-hmm. in place and then that's passed over to the buyer solicitor and it's up to the buyer solicitor to go through it and make sure it is correct. And at that stage, is there surveyors come in? Because you hear a lot about, you know, properties being surveyed, you know, mm-hmm. and again, does that tailor to, I've just bought a new house, I've just bought a house that's maybe 10 years old or 20 years old, you know, where where does the surveyor fit into that kind of process then? A surveyor is brought in, I've mentioned earlier, by the bank, but the, the term survey is used, but... I suppose it's, it's really a valuation is what the bank is doing. The bank is just making sure that you haven't overpaid for the property. Now, sometimes those valuations can maybe make comments about structure and issues and things like that, but you can't solely rely on it. It is highly recommended that a survey is carried out by a professional. So that means you get your own independent surveyor out to check the property. Now. If you buy a brand new house or a house that was built within the last or within 10 years, you've got a comfort that the house has a 10 year structural guarantee, um, which is something to rely on. But it still goes without saying it's always good to have a have a survey yeah. carried out on the property. 
And is that like I suppose that ten year guarantee that's for any kind of like for example if there's issues with the walls or maybe movement? Generally, or? yes, the foundations, your walls, and your 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 roof basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This main structure of the house. So, I suppose on a technical level, you don't need a surveyor, but it'd be recommended to get one just in case because they're going to pick up on things that if I walked on their property, I'm not going to see. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's always best to have one. It's all about reducing reducing risk, and a lot of people look at getting a survey because they think to themselves, "I don't want to spend that that money." The cost of it, generally, it depends on how detailed you want the the report yeah. to be. Some people look at it as, "I don't want to spend another five hundred pounds. I can't afford it." But my view on that is, well. Would you rather spend five hundred pounds to find out that there's an issue that's going to cost you five thousand pounds or ten thousand pounds? Yeah. So you're 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 spending money again. It's in business, like business. You're spending money to actually save you a lot of a lot of muscle uh, hassle. I suppose uh, again, maybe another way of looking at it is, is I've spent five hundred pounds. They've now got an issue or or find an issue with, for example, a retaining wall or something. It needs fixed. Mm-hmm. So I've got a fix, and this cost me a grand. If I don't fix it. The retaining wall is going to fall, mm-hmm. so I've just lost the house. You know, at a, at a, I suppose that's a very exaggerated way. Well, no, it's not uncommon. Something can can be flagged up in in it, in the report, and that's not to say that you know. Yes, you've agreed to buy the house. You've agreed to pay a price for it, but whenever you agree to buy through an estate agent and you've put your bid in, it is subject to the paperwork and the contract, and so you're not actually committed until you've signed on the dotted line, so to speak. So there's nothing actually stopping you to go back as a buyer and say to the seller, listen, I've got a survey done. Maybe you weren't aware of this, but the survey's flagged this up. It's going to cost X amount of pounds. That's, you know, it's completely up to negotiation. The seller might say, well, take it or leave it. They might say, right, well, I'll get it fixed. I'll pay for it. Or they might say, let's meet in the middle in some shape or form. Yeah, yeah. No, I suppose that's fair enough. So like... We've we've got obviously then the two two solicitors working um on their paperwork, everything's coming through, say for example a survey's done at you know, kinda where are we at then with the you know, in terms of a timed process, is there you know, a lot of people would talk about how long conveyance process takes. I suppose it's as quick as you want and as it's it's uh, it's a difficult one to answer. It's one that, that it's a question that you're nearly asked on a on a daily basis. Unfortunately, the time, the, the process is taken longer now, post-COVID, than it did pre-COVID, mm-hmm. which is ironic because that COVID has shifted nearly the vast majority of solicitors, the vast majority of the industry, the electronic, and it's slowed it down. And the time frame, you, you can't really put, you can't put a time frame on it because there's so many factors and it all depends how many people uh, is involved. For instance, if it's a chain, Mm-hmm. If uh, if you're just buying a house and maybe the person you're buying off is out of the house and the house is empty, those are two different types of transactions and it's two different types of time frames. And uh, uh, yeah, I suppose it depends. As you, I think you've mentioned before, like you know the amount of people that are involved in in the process. There's no one person overseeing it. or overseeing that. So. When you try and get everyone to actually pair off with each other and, and gather all that back and get everything all back into one pile, mm-hmm. for example, uh, that's going to be quite difficult to make sure that, you know, if someone says, I want this done in four weeks, mm-hmm. that's not 
not sustainable and probably not actually possible, you know, to try and get everyone pulled in for, for that that short time frame. I suppose, as you say, it really depends on, on how everything falls into place. And, and if someone gets back to you within, you know, 12 hours, that's great. Mm-hmm. But that's only one piece of the puzzle. Someone could take two weeks to get back to you and that's because they've jetted off on a 10-day holiday to Florida and is only getting back. Yeah. You know, I suppose that that that's a difficult one to try and manage, but obviously then kind of they they look closer to the, the end of the process. We've got all our paperwork together. You know, we're further down the line now. Where where are we looking then? There's no issues. Everyone's happy. Both sort of parties are happy. The the seller's happy. The buyer's happy. Is there questions that kind of need to be answered? before everything's finalised or, or where are we at? Generally, the first few weeks of a transaction, if you're acting for a buyer, from a buyer point of view, you don't hear much that that's, that's happening, but things are, are slowly happening in the background. This is where it comes back to what sort of solicitor you know, are you gelling with. Mm-hmm. So for instance, you know, if you prefer, you know, if you're a, sort of a person that wants a quick response, you're sent a quick email or text message, well then you need to choose a solicitor who's able to come back to you like that whereas if you want that response but yet the solicitor you're dealing with prefers phone calls or meeting you well there's going to be that delay in those responses maybe cause a bit of of frustration so as I said in those first few weeks things can happen very very slowly and then as you as as the transaction goes on it it kind of like snowballs yeah so generally once the solicitor has the vast majority of the paperwork in place. Some solicitors wait until they've got absolutely everything. But on average, if there's enough paperwork there, then the buyer will go in and meet with their solicitor. That's The solicitor will, will go through with them all about the property. So in no particular order and, and not exhaustively, you know, a map to show you the boundaries, maybe a bit of the history on the property, how old is the house. When you buy a house, if it's in the town, there's like rules linked to the house as to what you can, what you can't do. Go through maybe the energy performance of the property. They'll check a few things with you. If there's been a extensions, solar panels put on the house, those sorts of things. Yeah. And go through the survey with you as well. Hopefully after that meeting or maybe a few days later, you've went through everything, everything's perfect. Then you can sign the contract. And then at that point, you start talking about a completion date. Uh-huh. And that's when you work towards it. It's always best, once you know that that's all in order, only start talking about a completion date at that point. And the completion date is the, is the thing that everyone seems to focus on nearly, because it's you know judgment day nearly, where you know this is gonna be the completion date, I get to move into my new home on that day. Is that the case? Is there, obviously things can happen, Mm-hmm. You know, for example, someone's removal vans broke down, they can't get a ring out of the house. Is, is there delays in completion dates or, you know... Well, firstly, the completion date is the day you get your keys. And as you quite rightly say, everybody is so, so focused on it. The big problem is that the completion date is discussed at the start of the transaction, where that is not the right time to, to talk about it. You talk about it at a point when everything is ready. I always use the comparison, you know, if, if you've ever poured, out, poured water out of a, you know, a 20 litre drum, you have to go very slowly at the start and, yeah. it, it, you know, it's gurgling and splashing about and you have to do, go very, very slowly. You get the flow of it 
And as soon as you get about halfway to three quarters gone, the final quarter will just flow out so, 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 so quickly. Yeah. And I always use that, that comparison to a completion date. Whereas if you take the drum and just completely empty it upside down, it will actually pour out much more slowly and it'll just make a complete mess. Yeah. And I think that is the big problem with the conveyancing process at the minute. Everybody is talking about the completion date at the very start rather than towards the end whenever that is the right time for yeah, it. Yeah. So, you know, obviously then, as you say, they're realistically we should only be focusing on the completion date kind of once the contracts are, are, are signed and, and at that point then we, you know, everyone's kind of happy. Let's move towards what date's going to suit. Yeah. So who, who's involved in making that decision on that date? The completion date, another, there's another problem about it. Sometimes those completion dates are discussed just by a seller and a purchaser. But it has to suit the seller, the purchaser, the seller solicitor, the buyer solicitor, and the bank as well. And the bank's probably the key one because they need enough time to release the money to you. Trying to fast track that or push it actually makes it more difficult and it causes a lot more stress. I, about, was it six months ago, 12 months ago, I carried out uh, research on my business. I analyzed every part of it. And I wanted to know from buyers what was what did they find stressful about it, and from the vast majority of people didn't find the ban process or stressful at all. I then honed in to those who did find it stressful, and those people who found it stressful were getting caught up and hung up on the completion date. They were trying to control the completion date, when effectively you can't. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then obviously as they get more worked up over the course of the process because they were trying to work towards completion date, it became more stressful and yep. it became a not very enjoyable experience when it should be, especially if you're buying your first home, yep. it, should, it should be enjoyable and I think as you mentioned it should be exciting. Yes. Um, and again, like there's, I don't want to get bogged down into too much today because I, I don't know where I already have because we basically just went through the full conveyancing process. But you know, there's different things like chains of tra transactions that people kind of forget about as well, where there could be five or six different people buying and selling at the same time mm -hmm. that are all relying on the first transaction to go through, for the second to go through, for the third to go through, for the fourth to go through. You know, like, is this common in someone buying buying a property? How, how common would it be for for that chain to be kind of in there in the background that people maybe aren't going to see that until I actually get the keys to my house, someone three or four houses down on the, on the chain can only get their keys once I've got mine and the next person's got theirs and the next person's got theirs. Like, how common would that be? Traditionally, it wasn't overly common. Post-COVID, for about 24 months, that's basically what every single transaction was, which then was doubling up, trebling up, quadrupling the workload of, of, a, of a solicitor. And like anything, it added more people to, to the transaction, which was more stress and more you know trying to organise it all. Thankfully, we're seeing not as many chains at the minute, so that means it's coming back to more of a, a normal market. But to get... Even though it's a chain, the difficulties is getting all the paperwork in place, first of all, but then ultimately on the day of completion mm -hmm. can be very stressful because you have everybody all lined up, all mad to go, and that can cause the problems. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, like, you know, you're, you're <laughs> again, 
if it was only a buyer and a seller solicitor that was involved, that that's only two. But if you've got a chain, you could maybe have eight or ten different solicitors that are representing buyer and seller, buyer exactly. and seller, buyer and seller, and you're trying, well, you know, that's, that's trying to tee all, all them up there, you know, to make sure that everything's falling into place. Um, I suppose that so far, like, you know, completion, once once you kind of decide on the completion date, the contracts are saying completion date's coming up then, obviously the solicitor is the one that's in charge of the money mm-hmm. once the bank releases the money. Are they the ones that then disperses that out to where they where they should be going to? All money flows through the solicitor. So from the buyer point of view, the buyer needs to send their deposit into the solicitor and the bank will send the money to the solicitor as well. Once it hits their bank account, then they get it sent on to the seller's bank account and that's all electronic. Mm-hmm. Even though it is electronic, sometimes it can still be a wee bit slow, doesn't necessarily go instantly. Some banks won't release it for an hour, two hours, some could be 24 hours and that has an impact on it and occasionally banks will pull a payment as a security check and that can take time as well. But ultimately, nine out of 10 transactions run smoothly. Once the money hits the seller's solicitor's bank account, then at that point, the keys are able to be to be picked up. And I suppose at that point then, then your kind of transaction finalised, got the keys, I can now move into my, into my new home. So I suppose then uh, on a nutshell, and we've sidetracked a wee bit over, over the course of that, but that would be the process of, of buying a house. Yeah, so uh, affordability, budget, find the right house, mortgage broker and solicitor. And then you're good to go after that. Good to go. Well, I would probably say that'll finish us for, for this week's episode anyway. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Roy, for the great Thanks, the great insight. Um, as I said before, we will hopefully be back um, with guests on board. We're, we're going to be back talking about different subjects. But obviously, you know, that's the buying process. There's a slightly different version if you're selling a house. Um, and again, we're gonna we're gonna have people on to talk about different areas of convincing and, and obviously hot topics that are surrounding the property market. So uh, again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to stay tuned to our Roy Duggan Property Expert pages. Uh, we'll have tips and tricks and different videos going out on it. Uh, if you drop a follow, and if you have any questions as well, um, make sure to send them in. And we'll see if we can come up with a a reasonable answer for you. So uh, thank you all for listening. Stay tuned to the next episode. Thank you.